This is the Educational Triage Podcast. Welcome. We invite you to come along with us on an exploration of interviews, issues, and other exciting and relevant topics in education, especially alternative education. They say alternative education is a laboratory for mainstream education. Why? Well, join us every week and listen in as Philip Summers and I, Tony Hunt, jump in feet first to discuss issues that may affect our classes, students, communities, as well as our teaching. Please subscribe if you enjoy and find relevance in what you experience here. And if you haven't left a quick review, please do. We appreciate your candor and insights so we can improve as we move forward. Now, let's see what's on board today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Educational Triage. This is Tony. And of course, we're joined by the fabulous Philip. Aloha. Good to see you. And this week, we are not only starting our season three after a very brief hiatus, um, but Philip, you're going to teach us about Dunbar's number because over the past two years, you keep alluding to Dunbar's number and we all want to know what is Dunbar's number? How does that really play into education and how we form an educational community, or can we even call it a community? So let me just throw the mm. ball over to you and say, what is Dunbar's number? And oh, then right. how do does it this. relate to our ability to learn and to form meaningful relationships? All right. It's, uh, it's important to understand Dunbar's number is a theory. Robin Dunbar, I believe he's at Oxford? Now, he's an American. Um, he's an anthropologist. And he was looking at, at how people congregate, how they make communities, and what are the features of a community, and what's a feature of a friendship. But he actually and started with, didn't he actually start with primates? He actually did, yeah. He started with primates. There's a, a there's a video that I've linked it. He's in YouTube. He explains it. And primates, now, it, I'm not real good with the science on this, but primates have a certain capacity to have uh, banding groups. They come in smaller groups. And it's because they don't have as much of a cerebral cortex as, as, as humans do. And so um, humans, have, having a slightly larger one, have sort of the same sort of capacity to have relationships, friendships, per se. Um, the degree is, is, goes from you know, close friends and, and then to friends and then to associates and then to acquaintances. But um, there seems to be a limit, according to Robin Dunbar, about how many of these relationships we can have. Uh, effectively in a community that's cohesive and flexible and effective. Uh, okay. And there's tons of historical proof as, as well, too. Um, he, was, he was talking about the original banding groups were only 100 to 150. That magic number, by the way, is 150. 
So if a group of people stay at 150 members and below, they can form a cohesive group whereby they develop a hierarchy of from acquaintances to just you know close friends uh, and family um, and have that knowledge of those people in their heads and the capacity uh, physiologically to have those relationships. After that, humans tend to break down. They tend to, to break into subgroups. You know, things happen. We can talk about that later. But yeah, 150 seems to be the magic number. 100 is a great number too. I was always a big fan of 100. But... So that number 150, does that mean close friendships? Does it mean, no. what does That's that it. mean? Uh, that I believe it breaks down to about 10 being, no, maybe four or five being close, close friends, 10 being close, being friends or uh, closer friends, you know, kind of like intermediate friends. Um, let's see. Ah, I can't remember. It was in the, I was just working with the block. So many things are swimming in my head. Um, it seems to be also at about 50 you kind of lose the capacity to keep everybody at a kind of an associate level. Mm-hmm. So it goes close, it goes close friends, friends, associates. An associate would be somebody that, you know, I, I had them in education all the time. I, I had a cohort or a colleague rather who was working in another program and she would call me and say, listen, I got this kid that's perfect for you. Um, you know, we take him in the program that you got. And I'd listen to what she has, and I'd say, absolutely, send them on down. That's associates, you know. And then we'd see each other outside of work occasionally, you know, maybe at a Christmas party. And when there were get-togethers, I spoke with her. And she was kind of she was kind of closer to maybe a friend, but that associate would be that one where I know somebody and they talk all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. After that, they become acquaintances, people that you know, but you you don't generally work with very often or if you do it's intermittent or they can come into the associate top 50 and and other people from that level can go out that sort of thing but you can keep track of 150 right um i think it was it was either dunbar or stephen fry who said Mm. that the number is 150 because if you were at a foreign airport and you saw one of those 150, you would have no qualms going over there and sitting down and just talking to them because they're, example. they're, they're, you're at that comfort level with them because you know them yeah. and they already know who you are. So there's no reason for you to have to do introductions or no, anything yeah, like perfect. that. So all of a sudden they would come into your close group if you're in that foreign airport. Yeah. Well, f- close group for that point in time. That situation. Yeah, that point in time. Yeah. But what makes a friend? What makes Well, that's yeah. That's Thank you. this is the big question. What is a friend? I worked with mm. somebody who and I had to keep correcting them and tell them that we were colleagues, we were not friends. Mm. And they said, mm. "Well, what do you mean? I always thought we were good, close friends. And I said, one, you've never asked me out to dinner or had me over to your house. Mm-hmm. And I've never had you over to my house. We don't do anything outside. I have invited you to do things outside, but mm-hmm. that was it. Once my portion was done, you left and you didn't reciprocate or do anything. So it's pretty much... 
you consider anybody who you talk to during the day or work with or however you come into contact that with them as a friend mm. and that's not what a friend is that's a colleague yeah you're also you're getting a little deeper too or an acquaintance Just because yeah there are a lot of people that go on facebook and they say well i have you know i have 500 friends i have a thousand friends and uh, those are not friends. Those those are not are just, friends. Those are not friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, some people think that perhaps those are that those are meaningful relationships, but there's really nothing to those relationships. You know, there's no there's no trust bond or basis for it. So yeah, right. Because you can't you can't have 500 friends and then complain oh, that no. you have mental illness because you're suffering from such loneliness. You can't have that kind of loneliness if you have 500 bloody friends, right? If you're telling 500 friends you're you're isolated, I think that there's a oxymoron in there. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a little strange. So, yeah. getting away from virtual friends, yeah, virtual and no people who are like your life. Facebook, right. your Facebook, your Threads, your yeah. whatever, your followers, so four what friends, you. four close friends in your life. Um, or your group. Um, now let's think it's situational too. It's kind of, uh, it's situational. But it's different than family. It's different than your whole entire life as well. Um, some people keep work and um, uh, their personal life separated. Mm -hmm. And some people don't um, mix the two as very often. There'll be, uh, it takes a strong group to do that. And it, it takes a small group to do that. But within the situation that you have, you know, you have like three or four people that you're fairly close to, you confide in, you let me bounce this idea off you. Maybe I'm crazy. Tell me if I am. I trust you to tell me. Uh, and then you have friends, you know, the other cohorts. Um, and we're talking about peer systems. In a school system, that friend thing kind of goes out the window with kids. And we can talk about that because a teacher should not be a kid's friend. That we all agree that that's that's a boundary. Right, there's a uh, boundary. Being buddies with a student is not appropriate. Right. But um, but you can be buddies. You know, go out to lunch with the same group of people. You know, every day, and they're your friends, and you meet around that lunch, and mm -hmm. and maybe you know that group doesn't include some people who you tell you know confide in about that crazy idea you have. You know, we bounce off of you. Um, but, so, you know, you can talk about your husband or your wife or your family or your, you mm -hmm. know, things like that. Your, your hobbies, your travel, you feel good about that. Yeah. But and people do that with strangers too, don't they? Well, but it's small talk with this, you know, you mean it. it it's, it's long. It's a, you know, it's like, what happened with that thing that you had going, you know, that sort of conversation. So these people are, they're, they're closer than acquaintances, but they're not real close friends. And so oh, you're talking about you know, work. You're talking about work friends. Work. I am talking about work. I'm talking about in this case okay. work, just because uh, it's the institution that we can use. Some people keep them separate, and in their regular life, they have a whole different set. You know, right. they got well. They're depending on how they get along with their family. Their family may be just acquaintances, or they may be their brother or sister is their best friend in the world. Um, but yeah, it's it's in a situational social situation. Yeah, it's not your whole life, mm -hmm. uh, all inclusive. Um, Going back to you, though, makes, it's interesting. Yeah, I just but what makes within work a good friend? Okay. What 
how do you define a good friend? Is it shared yeah. experience? Is it an yes. emotional trust and bond yes. that you have? I believe in the yeah. book he talks about how the friends that you had in high school, you were very close to, but then you no longer have the bond of high school because you're all going off onto different life experiences. So that's not there anymore. Right. There's um, like a nostalgic friendship there. And, we all and have so high school it changes. Yeah. Right. And so the parameters change and you're bound to make better friends, yeah. closer friends. Maybe you still keep in touch with some of those friends and they stay friends, yeah. but that's not as typical as uh, you might think. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, in my situation, I have a good friend from high school, even junior high school, but, uh, and we graduated together. Now he's no longer a friend. He's just an acquaintance. We just, mm -hmm. I don't share a lot of the beliefs he has and we don't seem to, to connect like we used to, obviously. So over right. the years, but I still call him and we still hang out and we still talk about jazz music. That's his trick. He likes it a lot. And, but I wouldn't consider him a close friend anymore. Once upon a time, he's one of like two or three close friends. Yeah. So these numbers, that well, not the numbers, but the friendships can change. They can evolve. They yeah, go through different. Can only they shift through one different time. phases. Yep. At one time, you got that capacity. But people come and go. Okay. Yeah. So we might have four or five, a handful of those. Mm -hmm. We have our family. And the difference between the family, they, with the fans or something. Yeah, I'm sorry. Difference in family, you're right. Right, and the, the difference is your friends. And the difference in family, which I tend to disagree with sometimes, um, depending on. But that's all anecdotal. Yeah. Is you would do? You would probably tend to save a family member's life before you would a friend. But I can think of a yeah. lot of people who would say, um, uh-uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> so it's it that all varies. But that's with the yeah. typical example, that's what they would do. So, okay. Yeah. So we know that there's an emotional bond, shared experience, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Now let's take that number of 150, because I'm mm -hmm. just thinking about time and we can get into some of the nitty gritty a little bit later. Sorry. How does Dunbar's number, what's, what's the impact? What's the effect? What's the importance in education? Why should we as educators care? Right. So it's, it's kind of apparent um, if you take out all the political and budgetary questions you know, because when I talk about Dunbar's number, I'm going to say this. I think no school site should be bigger than 150 students and staff and support. And when totally. I say that, people go, oh, oh, my goodness. You know how expensive that is? It's like, yes. However, that's what I think would be a very ideal learning situation because at that site, you have everything you need and you have the basis for trust amongst everyone there because you have the mental capacity to do that. You can form a community with that 150 and less, and it forms sort of a norm. And the norm of that community is pretty much based upon a pretty egalitarian way of looking at it. 150 people have a lot of voice in there, each one. 
and you can operate very effectively in there. Um, you can also learn really well in there too, because you get those bonds of trust and we all know about that relationships. If you can develop those relationships with the students, then they learn much better and they, they held themselves accountable for the learning as well, because it's a community, it's a band. Um, and, you know, I could give you a lot of examples of what could happen within that, but say you have a, a community of Pacific Islanders there, you know, just happens to be there's, you know, if you're 150, they got students there, maybe 10, 15 students are Pacific Islander. Well, coming with them comes that culture and their families and things like that. And pretty soon in 150 people, you've got a strong cultural awareness of Pacific Island culture, which just empowers those kids because they feel like they have a place there. And in a small community like that, they do. It's contagious. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to tell you that the use of the term community, I'm gonna let you get away with that this week because next week we're going to address what is a community actually yeah, and can a school actually be yeah. a community um mm -hmm. because that's because we're taking a look at what are the relationships and how do communities right. function and how do schools function but that's next week so um right. and so if you're subscribed you will know so make yeah. sure that you hit that button um but I can't, where was I going with that? You were talking about, oh, oh about the culture and the, and learning from it. So yeah, for, yeah. how do you get, okay, so you have this community, you call the school a community and you, yeah. it's smaller. Do you do something in that community then where mm. Elon Musk talks about the program called Ad Astra? And that's where the students go in. It's almost unschooling. And it's where the students go in. And the students determine what it is that they're going to study because they're going to learn something. Oh. And so they start learning the the um they start learning the language, yeah. the reading, the writing, they start learning the math, but it's all for a particular reason, so it's all relevant. And so they're going after something, and so pieces fall into place on a natural evolutionary kind of manner. Is that the same kind of thing that you think about with the community or are you still talking about compliance with a bell and with set? No, 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 because <clears throat> that's perfect. Um, Elon Musk using that, that Astra program and forming its own course is the way learning is actually done and within 150 and below you you can pull that off you can make that happen because it's small enough that people feel valued and when they feel valued you can work with that you can form teams and leaders leaders come forward and uh not everyone can be a leader but everyone can lead with expertise and a good leader would know for example hey you know i don't know anything about that but ask so and so they're the expert on that and so that network opens up and all the way to 150 really and so right. it, it organically and flexibly evolves yeah it's perfect and that's exactly it 
So my question is, are is, is the school, maybe the school is in a community, and we can argue this if we want to, but you can bat me off. Is the school more of a network or is it really a well, community? The network comes from knowing what other learning, okay, so if you have other learning communities, and we should probably get a better word for this, right, that are 150 and less, they have different flavors to them. They have different courses, different objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in the district where there was a um, strong one that had an internship. You know, I think it was a couple days a week. You know, they're out doing stuff in in the community, working with, in the community of people that we live in, working at, at, at businesses, and then they go do work at school. Okay, mm-hmm. if that is your thing, if that fits better for you as a student, or if you're looking to do a vocational sort of internship with that kind of community, then you could go to that community and that's where you could find what you're looking for. So it's a network of these communities that tend to cater to the population that's even larger. I worked in one small program of 35 kids, but it had a teen parent program. Only mm-hmm. one in the district you had to go there. So that's, if you're a teen parent, you pretty much went to that program, but it was wonderful. And then sometimes the kids would drop their children off in the morning at the childcare center and then go to the high school to classes. Again, a network. Mm-hmm. So Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Tipping Point, he mm-hmm. discusses that teachers, in a sense, well, he doesn't say teachers, per se, but he alludes right. to it, and that's how I picked up on it. Um, so if anybody wants to give me grief, don't. Yeah. Teachers are more of a connector that works within the realm of the networks. He's absolutely right. So can you talk a little bit about that and how mm-hmm. – and and the does every teacher then serve 150 students? students no it's it if you're smart (laughs) and you funded everything and it's it's got all the resources it needs then the teacher student ratio should be that it should be accommodating i would say ideally i would love something that could 150 let's say the support staff in that building is five Mm -hmm. and that would be maybe pairs let's make it six pair as a secretary and an administrator Okay. And then the rest is teachers and students. So that makes, oh gosh, let's say 142. I'll give you that, eight. Okay, now uh, that's- One teacher gosh, for every lot. 20 students. Yeah, so what's so that? That gives then? you seven. Uh, five, six, seven. Seven, I think that's seven to eight teachers is perfect for that. And the reason I say eight is because your community is going to lean towards something that may be unusual, like- uh, 3D printing, technology makerspace stuff, uh, robotics, and you might want to hire a teacher who does robotics. Or there's also adjunct staff that are are paid for by, I believe AmeriCorps had a program where some teachers came mm-hmm. in and things. They do. And they would run a whole side program uh, out in the field. I remember one was... They were working in the bog and swamp on a project, a restoration project. And these kids would wade in the mud in these big boots. They just loved it. But they learned a ton. 
And mm-hmm. so there it would be. I, I agree with that. You know, I know a lot in my head, but wow, I, I don't know hardly anything compared to what's in the world. So yeah, being a facilitator and a mentor. Yeah. So how does that, but how does that impact learning? If kids yeah, are well, in a yeah. smaller classroom, because we all keep talking about advocating for smaller class sizes. Yeah. We know that a lot of communities can't afford that. But they that's the problem. That's a problem, yeah, because we really owe it to the kids to have a teacher student ratio mm-hmm. that's viable. That's you know, I mean, every teacher works really hard to reach every student, and some students work really hard not to be reached at all, which is really tough. But if you have a low ratio, you hope for that relationship. You can get to know the students. The students can feel like they have some empowerment. They're autonomous. Mm-hmm. Um, I can, I've gotten it with a kid that just wouldn't even really talk to me. I figured out through just questioning and looking at facial expressions, what they wanted really to learn about. And then I just catered the lesson to that. And I kind of broke some ice on that. And they said, well, wow, you're, really working at listening to me, but I'm not telling you anything and and things like that. I I have the time to do that with a low student teacher ratio. And Mm -hmm. the kid has that time to to develop that relationship. They just don't go to the next period and and then start over, you know, they stay, you know. But how does that impact attendance and student achievement, et cetera? They want to be there. One of the community, um, norms that you'd have to establish is an attendance policy you know look uh don't what i used to say uh you know you can't do the school thing if you don't come to school Mm -hmm. and so what can we do to get you a you know a different schedule that can help you or a different program that you're interested in you know don't just say well you're not cutting it here take off that sort of thing um and then an academic sort of policy whereby it's realistic to graduate by the time you're 18. If I do the math and you have to earn these many credits, <laughs> we should shoot for that. And then, of course, the behavior, which comes, that is really the key because if you have the, the community norms and it's the same for everybody and it's fair, then everybody understands their status there is valuable because they're earning it in a way. It's not just I can, you know, they just sent me here and I can do anything I want. It's like, no, you know, you're part of a a, a general community of people. Yeah. And this is the standard. And then you can encourage those relationships with uh, agency of curriculum, develop curriculum catered to the kids. With their ILP. You can get to a lot of stuff. Yeah. Through, I can get to stuff through almost any topic. I mean, within reason, I mean. Even chemistry, gosh, take me out in a walk and we can talk chemistry. It's out. It's everywhere. I, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's very, people just want to learn. Humans really do want to learn. And kids really want to learn. But they don't want to be told anything, what to learn, And they don't to want to be put, yeah. they don't want to be put on the stage to perform like monkeys. In a yeah, sense, they don't too. want because sometimes they're unsure of themselves, and so 
they don't want you to call on them to read. They don't want you to have them go up to the board to write things down to show mm-hmm. what they have. Um, so sometimes using a group where the group creates something and they can work together in a small group. Maybe it's a table group of four and everybody right. does the problem. And if somebody's not understanding it, then the other people in the group can turn and help them. Or if nobody in the group knows, then that's when the teacher can be the facilitator and come in and help right. them. So, right. um, if the teacher facilitates that situation itself, right? To let it happen, right? Because right. that gives the teacher immediate feedback as far as what people are learning and what they're having an inability to comprehend, right? For whatever reason, let me ask you this: You also bring up in the blog about the Navy SEALs. Oh yeah. <laughs> What in bloody tarnation does that have to do with education? Well, it has. Jeez, that's a good question. <laughs> the Navy SEALs uh, are some of the most educated humans on the planet. Uh, these guys are in classrooms constantly anyway, learning and learning. Uh, Special Forces, uh, Green Berets in the Army, they, have, they know languages. They learn languages in a matter of months. Um, so they know how to learn and they also know that in small teams, there's a flexibility and a knowledge base and a cohesiveness that makes them what's called a force multiplier. Like, let's all be serious about, you know, I'd be much more scared about a squad of eight seals than 50 infantry platoon men. I just eight seals are like a just a one unit wrecking crew they're they're fluid they they do what they do for the man on the right and the man or the person on their left and right uh the stakes are high the consequences are high the intelligence is uber high um and they know that if you keep it in a small group situation they can be flexible they can learn quick they can meet your objective because it usually goes to pieces the moment they hit the ground. That's when the plan just goes and falls apart. So really every operation they go on is a learning sort of process. And they and they do it like on the move and they do it in small groups. None of those groups are bigger than 120 when they go battle operational. And they're just, and that's including the um the SOAR members, the helicopter pilot, special operations, aviation regiment, SOAR. They're just as trained. They're just, they, they're small, they're tight. These guys around them are not acquaintances, actually. They're more of like brothers, um, but they are acquaintances. They don't, if you've earned the trident, for example, you earn a reputation. Every seal pretty much has heard of every other seal, no matter where they are in the world after about a year. Oh, yeah, I heard about you're over in the, you know, you're in seal team four, you're over here, that. It's so small, they know each other. And they wear the but, trident, they can trust each other. So they've earned, they the, they've earned the also, membership in the community. Yeah. Well, in the evolution of warfare, mm-hmm. they still yeah. maintain and still retain the solid elements of the early militia of the United States, which was guerrilla no. warfare, because we were some of the well, first guerrilla. We did. There's so the revolution much, yeah. had 
guerrilla warfare. And so that's what they're doing because yeah. they're not they're not fighting no. as an infantry. No, they don't. They're force multipliers. So yeah. The thing they did was there used to be you get in the army and then you get out. Mm-hmm. Um, they're professional soldiers. Right. And um, their lives depend on knowing like more than the enemy, being smarter than the enemy, constantly being more flexible and cohesive than the right. enemy. And and that, I mean, it seems it's an extreme example of what you can do in any community. These guys just go and they do dangerous, dangerous things and then return, you know, because they're that cohesive, flexible and dedicated to it. They're small groups. And if they were big groups, it wouldn't work. Um, big groups fracture. They they tend to gain cliques around a couple. Of, you get a good, a solid friendship between two or three. Uh, a clique will develop around that. You know things like that. If you get over 150, mm-hmm. and they they don't have that. So what happens? Flipping around a little bit and getting back onto the lily pad we were on yeah. earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a look at, you've got a small school. Is there any way for a mainstream high school? Now, I taught in one that was around 2,000 students. I know of schools that have over 4,000 students. How do they, how could they capitalize on creating smaller elements, or could they? Do you think that there is a way that they could do that within that structure, or do you think that the, that entire structure has to be dismantled in order suspect, for? Because after yeah. a while, when you have an institution that's that huge, yeah. Yeah. it's more about containing containing the students and policing yeah, yeah. them than it is actually yeah. teaching them. So, so how do you, yeah. if you have any ideas with your years of expertise, how do you can, how do you, you take care of that element and reverse it so that it's not about yeah. containment, but it's about attainment. Yeah. I, that's a, I suspect that those big high schools are just not going to work for that at all, uh, for Dunbar's number. Uh, here's the thing. So even if you said, I've seen this in like middle schools and high schools, you've got like Oak Hall and Spruce Hall and Pine Hall. And, you know, mm-hmm. you belong to that hall. And I've even seen it where the middle school actually had almost a barrier between them. They had like a red rope, like the velvet, but the red rope kind of thing. And um, it still, it didn't work because the kids just felt like they were a finger on a hand. They didn't feel the ownership of the community. It was a small community and they were working in it. But then they would go into the cafeterias or they would go into the gym areas, common areas. And that behavior that, a big population in the school will this kind of like, you know, kind of like, it's sort of like a foundation 
You know, the so, one kid who's a jerk is a jerk. He's still a jerk, but he's over mm-hmm. in Spruce, not Pine anymore. And you know his antics. Right. Because when you go at lunch, he tells you how he was doing it. That destroys the community. That it's it just, the connection is too great. His friends, the friends that meet between the two of them, mm-hmm. you know, they become that friendship group. And that has nothing to do with one of those halls. And that's why they're at school is to be in those halls like all the time. They don't know better. And so they just see it as a kind of a restriction and movement less than a community. So they're more of a gulag in the archipelago. Well, kind of. You know, schools are designed by the same folks who designed prisons, for God's sake. So, duh. I went went down a hall the other day and I went, holy cow. I I would be seriously out of breath if I ran down this hall. (laughs) Right. And I've been... I've been doing a lot of reading with John Taylor Gatto, with Nicole Goyle, with Matt Hearn, with John Abbott and Tony Little. Um, I've been reading up on the the list that you inadvertently gave me. And I'm finding it's it's really kind of it's it's sad to think that we have these huge institutions that are meant to teach compliance. They don't really teach much in skills to children. Mm -hmm. And if they are supposed to be teaching to skills, those skills are woefully lacking year after year because the expectations have been lowered generation to generation to generation. So... mm, I'm wondering whether or not there's more than that, but yeah. Well, I'm trying to keep trying to keep that from yeah. becoming the talking point. Yeah, yeah. If we had better numbers, do you think the attainment and the achievement level, because of the ability to have more innovation? And the comfort level of the students feeling as though they belong and that this is something that they own. Do you believe that we would have higher achieving students, not necessarily to a test, but higher achieving in thought, in word, in deed? Yeah. Oh, I think you'd have both. I mean, I, I when I was doing it in that small environment, the kids made standards. That was the graduation requirement, and that was one of our targets, and there we went. But the right. journey to it was a much different journey, yeah. I, I would go on record as saying, uh, yeah, if schools were more like little satellite communities of 150 and less and just networked each other. Now, there'd have to be, you know, some allowances because you got the traditional high school football, basketball, volleyball, swimming, all that stuff. Uh, and then, you know, the pep rallies. Um, some kids really enjoy those things. And so, I mean, that has right. to still be around. But um, Well, there's a way to manage all that. I mean, you sure. don't have to... Every every small school community, if that's what we're going to call them, could be yeah. part of a bigger project where this, oh, some yeah. of the students could participate with others and they could kind of have like their community recreation center, so to speak. 
Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Or you could still just have the regular high schools. I mean, some kids really thrive in that. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't put everyone in there and you don't make them you know, like 3,000 students. It, if you think about it, it's no surprise whatsoever to the average uneducated person who's not a sociologist to know that if you put 3,000 kids in a single building or in a complex that's so close to each other, it might as well be, you're going to have a pretty weird social system because they'll create it. Right. And so (laughs) let's, 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 what if we looked at that like a society? I do, but yeah, yeah. What if school what if each school was its own society? Mm-hmm. My God. Uh, exactly right. Would you have a more functional society with a smaller group than with a larger group? Uh, you would have a functional society because a society has to be huge. However... Um, that it's apples and oranges because a band is about 150. A society is huge, but that might be what destroyed the band mentality. That, that may be where our downfall would be, you know, like creating cities and factories like that. Mm -hmm. Can you pause for a second? Just, I got to go across my room. Okay. We're winding down. So, what do you believe educators and school administrators can do to improve the quality of relationships and these communities, networks within the schools, regardless of the size of them? And I mean by networks, the networks between the teachers and the students, networks between the administration and the teachers, and also the networks between the administrators and the children. And the parents. Are you talking about the, the building community. site itself? Like the 150 or less building site or less? I'm talking about if we look at the relationships that you can build with those networks that you have. Right. How can okay, yeah. you how can you take that? Because you already know if something works in a small building. What they're going to say, and it's successful, and I've seen this far too many times, and they absolutely ruin all the programs because they say, Mm -hmm. look, it works for them. We're going to expand it and make it bigger. No, it worked because it was in a smaller setting. Mm -hmm. Correct. It's not going to work for a bigger one. And they have this arrogance of, well, I'll decide what works and what doesn't work rather than take a look and actually have a conversation and study it to see what the whole purpose behind that was. So, but how could they, let's say, take this and implement it? So let's say that instead of a gulag archipelago, like you were talking about, where they have the robin set and the bluebird set and the, mm-hmm. and the parrot set, Mm-hmm. in a school and they're all differentiated how do you make that so that could work or do you just throw that all away and do something else 
I think you throw it away. Um, and I, you know, while you were talking about the networks, you were talking about the net, you were talking about the network between the administrator and the kids. And I, and I wanted to yeah. make a comment there, there isn't a network between the administrator and the kids, <laughs> but I've actually worked in a building where our administrator was known and loved by the kids, our one administrator. And they, and she had an office that was really accessible and right there. And she was part mm -hmm. of the staff. In fact, the staff would go in, we'd sit down and talk and get up and leave. And it was very door open policy stuff. So it got me thinking, you know, we're kind of in trouble when we're building these huge schools and they have four administrators. It's like, why are we paying so much? Yeah. For them to administrate that facility, it should run itself. Because if the curriculum comes, you know, from below and the teachers are working with it, you don't need administrators. Just one on site, the smaller schools, and they all know each other. And this whole fleet of, you know, the office and the administrators, there's no need for it. I, yeah, I'm just thinking, why? We hired all these people just to figure out this big building. It has nothing to do with learning. Right. Oops. Right. That's a that's that's a little bee for people's <laughs> bonnets, I think. And, I think so, yeah. And to be honest, I think that's where we're gonna have to end today. That works. Thank you, Philip. Oh, you're welcome. I was just I thought you were gonna say something else. Yeah. I, I yeah, it just occurred to me. <laughs> we have a whole we have operators of the school that don't have much to do with the inhabitants. It's very strange. Right. And next week, we will take on institutions, communities, networks. And we'll delve we'll into up the that. sociological ladder. Yeah, I'm keeping Yeah, hearing. And see where we go. So that's taking this just one step further. So I encourage everybody to write in. Check out Philip's blog. That will be linked below as well, as well as some of his other links and with the show notes. So thank you very much. And we will see you again next week. Goodbye. That too.